Hi, I'm Michael Dean Parsons. I'm a composer for Shellman TV, and you might know my work from projects such as Pain Hustlers and Bridgerton. And you're listening to Kyle on the Isle. And welcome to Kyle on the Isle. I'm your host, Kyle Olson. Join us today as we delve into the world of film and TV music with Michael Dean Parsons, a master composer whose work spans from productions like the Emmy-nominated Bridgerton to blockbusters such as King Richard and the most recent Hunger Games. Michael's talent for crafting emotive scores transforms storytelling immersing audiences in a world where music speaks volumes. Today, we'll uncover the artistry behind his compositions, exploring how he shapes the emotional backbone of films and series with his melodic melodies. So get ready for a journey into the soundscape of cinema with the one and only Michael Dean Parsons. And action! Michael Dean Parsons, welcome to Kyle on the Isle. We are so happy to have you here, man. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat with you. Oh, this is really exciting for us because this is our first person that is in the music world and composing and creating songs and theme songs and scores and all of these really exciting things that truly do bring productions to life. So I know that there's a lot of folks that are listening that are very interested in learning a little more about this world. And I know I myself don't probably know as much about this world as I should, even though I've been working in the industry for a minute. So really excited to be able to kind of pick your brain here today. I kind of like to start these podcasts by talking with folks about what was their initial kind of interest and origin story as getting into Hollywood kind of goes for people. So what was it when you were maybe growing up when you were younger? Was there something that kind of stood out to you that you saw, that you watched, that you heard, that kind of got you interested in the career path that you have been kind of going down over the years now? Absolutely. It was a long journey that started when I was four or five years old and my parents in New Jersey made me start taking piano lessons, which I hated. Mm -hmm. But the agreement was always I could stop when I was 12 years old if I learned to play for a lease or something, you know, some, (laughs) some kind of piece. Okay. And basically I just hated it. And I saw School of Rock like two years later and I thought, Okay, well, the drums are kind of cool. Guitar is kind of cool. Maybe I'll start to learn to play those, but I, I still hate the piano and I hate practicing all of them. So I got to a point where I was like eight years old and I was taking drum lessons, guitar lessons and piano lessons and wasn't practicing any of them. So I was a failed child musician by all accounts. And, you know, when I wait later did uh, my undergrad at Juilliard, I learned that, you know, all my peers are like four or five years old, you know, playing the violin as straight out of the womb as possible. And so basically, when I was 10 years old, or maybe maybe even a little younger, I found this video online of some kid playing the theme song from Legend of Zelda on YouTube. And okay. like his whole family was cheering for him as he played it. I was like, that's a pretty cool uh, piece of music. I'd like to learn that. I think that was the mm. first time I connected this 
thing I hated doing every week with, oh, this is actually something that resonates with me because the video games I was playing. And, right. and then from there, it started to really unravel where, you know, I was watching Lost, which I think was every 10-year-old's favorite show if their parents <laughs> let them watch it. Yeah. And the music in that by Michael Giacchino was just so moving and you know, mm. sweeping. And so that was, you know, these different experiences started showing me what music could do with that. And then when I actually started writing, I must have been 10 years old and we had like a school assignment in the music class and it said, just write a melody using every note in the octave because the prior week we had learned about every note. You know, we learned C, D, E, F, G, and it was like time to put that stuff to use, write a melody. So I do. And I showed my dad. And then of course, my dad looking to find some way to brag about his kid goes over to the local church. And it just happened that the choir director had just gotten his doctorate in music composition from Juilliard. Yeah. And he had just taken on this choir director position, basically just to earn a couple extra bucks as he started his formidable career. But my dad shows him this little piece and he drags me over to the church to talk with this guy. And he goes, all right, hold on, come back next week. I have a gift for you. And he shows up with a supermarket shopping bag and it's filled with like 20 CDs, 20 scores. And it was like a complete music history course from, you know, 1600s Renaissance music all the way to like crazy Philip Glass, Steve Reich, contemporary minimalism. And that kind of just blew my mind. And from there, it was like, I want to do film music and I want to write music. I want to learn to write for orchestras and I want to do all this crazy stuff that I heard. And that was the path ever since then. Wow. Okay. So this definitely started young. It sounds like absolutely kind of mentioned the legend of Zelda kind of first peaking your interests. Was there a movie that you were watching around this time where you're like, wow, that score, the music here, this is something that like, I really want to dive into. Honestly, it was TV show Lost. It was. It was Lost. <laughs> it was just Lost. And I, I know that like the standard answer, the like very eloquent uh, composer answer is to say <laughs> that I saw the bike flying scene in E.T. and John Williams <laughs> soaring beam. Yeah. You know. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you said no. Lost was it. It was Lost. <laughs> it took a good three years before I was like, there is no greater music ever written on the planet. And I made it. It's an amazing score. I love it. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So when you're kind of first getting your feet wet and kind of learning the ways of how to uh, do what it is that you do now, what was kind of your entry, like your first job that kind of set you on the path to grow in your career? Yeah. So I think the interesting thing to understand with writing music is learning to write music and do it in the quote unquote classical way that was ultimately the path I went down Right, is very different from what it looks like to be a film composer. And so by the time I was 18, I'd spent all that time since I first started writing, learning everything I could about how to write for a bassoon properly, what the different strings of the violin are, learning all the repertoire, writing endless pieces. And I grew up in New Jersey, so I was very close to New York, where there's a thriving contemporary classical music scene. And so I was fully immersed in that. And then it was really when I started my first week at Juilliard, which was a total classical degree. You wouldn't touch a computer to write music, you know, if it were right in front of your face. And I called up this same mentor. His name is John Kafer, uh, the one who gave me the shopping bag with all the scores and CDs. And he had later become a film composer and he works, does a lot of commercials, does a lot of network TV themes. And I called him my first week at Juilliard and I said, 
I think maybe I'm in the wrong place because I actually want to learn how to be doing all this film music stuff. And, you know, he started telling me like, okay, well, you need to really learn production. You need to learn how to use computers to make music. You need to do all these things that are outside of like, I can write a nice orchestral piece Mm -hmm. and play catch up with all these other skills. And so I started, you know, after I was taking music theory and ear training and counterpoint and all these normal conservatory classes, I was basically just sending out mass emails trying to get any internship in New York I could. And the one that first landed was, God, I don't even know if I really know what that studio did in the end. So I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, they'll, go, they'll go unnamed, but I was just so naive. I didn't really know what was going on. But from yeah. what I gathered, they would do a lot of sound alikes, like when a production mm. couldn't license a song. Right. And so they would be paid to, you know, recreate it within the legal bounds. Sure. And they discovered that I had a pretty good ear. And so they started calling me to like tune badly sung vocals. And as any proper studio internship, it wasn't like I show up at a certain hour and then I leave. I would just get calls at 11 PM from the engineer working that day being like, Hey, I'm having, you know, cause a, a lot of engineers, their skill set is in recording and like sound quality, but they don't often have that music theory component. So they'd right. call me and be like, Hey, can you just figure out how to make all these harmonies work and tune the vocals and just, you know, make it happen. And so I was doing that for like a good four or five months on top oh of God. all my random stuff. I mean, I, it was definitely kind of hard to get that initial foot in the door out in LA just because like I was getting a great music education and this mentor, John, you know, I was sending him hundreds and hundreds of just like little 30 second, 45 second pieces of music and just say, Hey, how does this sound? Like, is the reverb okay? Does this sound like production ready? You know, could this go in a reality show? Could I license this? So I was kind of getting that semi-private lessons with him, so to speak, just through email, harassing him, sending him everything I wrote. Sure. But, you know, it really took until the like summer after my sophomore year in school to actually land something that felt like I was working in the industry, even in the most abstract sense, which is I was sending out hundreds and hundreds of emails throughout the year, trying to find any composer in New York that would let me shadow them, find anyone in LA that I could go intern with. And finally, I got a connection to a company up in Valencia that provides reality TV music for Biggest Loser and The Apprentice and those kinds of shows. And so finally, I got that in. Spent a summer up in Valencia. Wow. And I cleaned a bunch of cockroaches out of the closets. And I, you know, <laughs> was like, oh, we have 20 old computers you know, that were like an OS from five years before I was born. They're like, can you, I think we have like the theme song to this show somewhere on that and we need to recall it. And so I was doing a lot of that stuff. But gradually, you know, just being in that environment with these composers who were like machines in a way, they could just pump out, you know, four or five minutes, six minutes of, this music every couple hours, basically, because the demand was just so high. And so kind of just watching their process. And then later in the internship, they might start a piece of music and ask me to finish it for them. And so that was my first taste of really writing music on projects Mm. and feeling like I was doing it at a professional level, really, for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine just being somewhere that you're kind of surrounded by other creatives that are doing what ultimately you want to be doing. That certainly helps, right? Yeah. I mean, when I was in New York and I would talk about wanting to go to LA, everyone would say, oh, well, you don't want to do that because everyone is just in it for the industry and you're not going to get any variety. I was like, well, out here, I've not met a single person who's like a real professional working composer. (laughs) You know, it's like growing up, all my peers, their dads were lawyers. 
bankers the types of fields that you commute to New York for. Right. Yeah. You couldn't surround yourself like that with those people in New York. Yeah. The only person I even had as a frame of reference for someone who was making a living writing music for film and TV was this mentor of mine, John. Because in the classical world, you basically make your living by being a professor and then you get grants and you get commissions, but you're not like really supporting yourself until you're at a very late stage in your career or a very established place through writing music alone. So when I went out there and was working with these people in the studio, I just saw people who were living their life and they could pay their rent with these tracks. And they weren't writing rock songs. They weren't writing pop songs. You know, they were like using orchestral sounds. And wow. And that was just really inspiring for me and showed me that even if I wasn't going to be the next Hans Zimmer or John Williams or whatever, that there were so many people who could just write music and it'd be their fun livelihood. Yeah, absolutely. That was a lesson that I think I had, like, when you first move to LA, it's a little daunting, right? Because you're like, oh, gosh, am I going to make it? Like, I'm such a tiny, tiny minnow in such right. a big, big pond. And I remember I was talking to, I think it was a family friend from back in the Midwest. And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if this is going to ever happen because there's just so many things out there and they're so much bigger than I am. And I'm this guy that just came out here from the Midwest and I don't know what's going on. Right. And my friend quickly reminded me, he was like, yeah, but think of all the TV stations that are out there. And at this time, like streaming was just starting to kind of come into the mix. And, you know, all these stations need content 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and they all need production managers and PAs and directors and composers and everything. Right. So right. when you start to think about just the sheer volume, of what is created on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, you start to kind of do the math and think about your odds. And it's like, okay, well, actually, maybe there is a place for me out here, right? <laughs> right, right. And I think some of the best advice I've ever gotten was actually at the end of that internship. You know, I had largely been dealing with kind of the ground workers who are really writing a lot of the day-to-day cues. And then on the final day, the CEO of the company was like, all right, well, you've, you've spent the last two and a half months out here. Let's go. Let's go get some Mexican food and chat. And so, so he drives me and he's like, you know, gorgeous BMW or Porsche or something. And we go to this restaurant and this advice stuck to me ever since then, which was, you know, you should have your goals oriented in a certain direction. Like if you want to do live action, studio features, dramas, whatever, orient that, but don't close off every other door Mm. because you're so focused on this one direction. And I think the way he put it is like, don't fail at your career being a movie composer if you have the opportunity right next to it to be the absolute king of trailer music or like the, right. the guy who owns the commercial music sector. And so I've always kept that in mind with like, no, something might not be immediately obvious how it will lead to your dream goal, but man, you can have some exciting projects in other directions and they might actually make you uh, more satisfied in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Take the whole journey, right? Don't just look right. at the end goal, you know, kind of enjoy the ride type of thing. No, that's, that's solid advice. And, and obviously this advice, uh, you've taken it to heart because when we look at your resume, it's pretty stacked. <laughs> We've got everything on here from Bridgerton, Pain Hustlers, King Richard, Hunger Games, Space Jam, the Obi-Wan Kenobi documentary that recently came out on Disney Plus. I could go on, uh, but then we'd run out of time for the podcast. <laughs> 
I want to definitely talk about some of these productions, but yeah. before that, I'm interested. I think a lot of people understand what a composer is, but maybe less people understand some of these other roles that you serve in a musical capacity as well. Cause some of yeah. these credits you have are score producer, additional music, obviously some right. are composer. Can you help me and audiences understand what is the definition between these different types of roles? Yeah, sure. It's a not so easy answer sometimes. I'm sure. <laughs> sometimes a programmer can be a composer. Sometimes a producer mm. can be a composer. Sometimes these can be administrative roles. I'll do my best though. So yeah. basically when you see music by someone, you see a head composer. Most people just think of it as that person writes the music mm-hmm. and that's it. But really that person represents the head of an entire department which is responsible for delivering a fully produced, recorded, spotted, edited piece of music to the final dub. Mm -hmm. And so the composer is not only writing music, but overseeing the mock-ups, the recording, the mixing, mastering, studio rental space, engineering, like all these different things that it takes to go from having an idea in your head to seeing the music on the screen. And so it's a very large kind of team that actually encompasses what music by Michael or music by anyone actually is. Right. So some of the roles that you see kind of within the creative side of the team is, well, the first is a credit I've gotten a lot of, which is additional music, Mm -hmm. which basically means that in addition to the main composer providing music, I have also provided music, (laughs) but usually maybe in the same way that you'll have additional editors or, you know, sometimes like a, a second unit director or something. I'm so not steeped in some of the actual filmmaking process. So maybe those aren't um, good examples, but just with the schedules that filmmaking works on nowadays, it won't be uncommon at all to get two or three copies of picture a week, new turnovers, scenes added, scenes taken away. Maybe you'll have four or five weeks to do an entire score. And that's not only writing the music, but also getting it approved, going through the revision process, which with some directors might be 20 revisions per queue with some directors. It might be version one is great. Let's ship it. So when a composer will say, Oh, I had two months to do this. There might only be a month of that. That's actual writing time. And then a month is recording, mixing all these other things. And so with that schedule comes the need to sometimes bring in some help. And so, you know, if a main composer has established themes, you know, there might be some cues that other people will either flesh out or write using the themes in mind or just write from scratch, but using the tone of the film established by the head architect, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the additional music role. And that spreads that entire gamut from the head composer doing a thorough sketch and you're kind of just going in and taking it to the final level versus just like, I don't have time to do this cue. Can you jump in? So that job kind of spans that whole thing. As for what score producer is, man, that's a, uh, an even more difficult definition. I've mostly gotten that credit with my work with James Newton Howard, who's probably my greatest mentor. He's a you know an absolute hero of mine. I first heard his music when I was five years old, and my mom let me watch The Sixth Sense. So that was my first exposure to his music. But yeah. I started working with him about four and a half years ago in that capacity. And that is the most amazing gig, because as score producer, I basically just act as an extension of him and in, in kind of mm. all regards where I'll work with him to develop the electronic soundscapes of the film. We'll run recording sessions together. We'll do meetings together daily, going back and forth on his cues and offering feedback and working with the orchestrators and music editors and 
So it's kind of just when you're at his level, you need to duplicate yourself for <laughs> certain parts of the process. So yeah, that's been extremely rewarding. And then in the last year, we co-composed the Score for Pain Hustlers, which was an amazing experience and currently have some stuff brewing in the future. Well, let's talk a little bit about Pain Hustlers. This is probably your most recent production to come out, streaming now on Netflix. Yes. How did this kind of come to be? And talk me through a little bit about how you bring a score for something like this to life. Yeah. So this was kind of your total Hollywood dream situation. You know, when you're a young composer, you yeah. kind of have a couple options of how you can quote unquote make it on a big project. Sure. And option one is you get super lucky and you're dorm mate is the next great filmmaker and they have you do their short when you're 18 and you just ride that wave till the end of your career. The other option, which I think is not dissimilar for an editor or for a lot of other positions in the industry, is you find someone to kind of apprentice under. And if those people are generous and nice, your hope that you would never verbalize to them. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to replace anybody. Don't want to take any work away. Yeah, yeah. Right? You, yeah. yeah you would never verbalize this hope, but you hope that a breadcrumb you know, falls in your lap if you... <laughs> It's a very nice way of putting it. Uh, yeah, if you work hard <laughs> enough. And so I was in London with James for about five months back in late 2020 or 2021 working on the third Fantastic Beast movie, which is directed by David Yates, who also did the other two Fantastic Beasts, the last mm -hmm. four Harry Potters. And so through that whole process, I got very acquainted with working with David. David got to know me, and it was just a great kind of intro to a director of his caliber in a very hands-on situation. And so earlier this year, when Pain Hustlers was really starting up, James was initially brought onto the film solo. James had been looking for a way to kind of prop me up for a while. And he basically just suggested to David that I, in addition to his work on the film, just kind of start providing a bunch of pieces of music. Wow. And James is extremely transparent. And so from day one, even before it was established that I would be the recognized co-composer. I think at that time, you know, the thought was I'd be additional music or something, but I would just have a very hands-on role in it. Mm -hmm. But James is just so generous and transparent. He's not trying to hide when he's not writing a cue or anything like that. So from day one, I think it was actually on my birthday last year, James told me like, why don't you just start writing a bunch of music, read the script. Like they haven't even, we haven't gotten the cut yet, but let's just respond to the script. And we'll see what David thinks. So I spent my entire birthday just like working an 18 hour day, grinding out 30 second piece of music after 30 second piece of music, like anything I could try and tangibly get from the script. I was like, okay, well, maybe he wants this kind of tone. Maybe he wants this. Like mm -hmm. I had no idea what the picture would look like. I had no idea what kind of music they were going to be temping with, but I just started like going crazy because I thought if I can give him 25 ideas and one sticks, that's one that's piece all of you music, need. That's one piece of music of mine that's in the movie and I'm not going to get kicked off. Yeah. <laughs> And so I did that. James was happy with the, you know, I called them sketches that I did. And they started temping with a lot of them. And so then just as the process went on more and more, more of the score ended up having my work in it. And then James doing his cues, of course. And then eventually, just a testament to the kind of guy James is, is he emailed David and he said, you know, Mike's done quite a bit of the score. How do you feel about it saying music by James and Michael? And he said, yeah, no problem. If you're okay with that, I'm good with it. And that was that, you know, I think the agents had to do a little emailing behind the scenes, <laughs> to, you know, really lock it in place. It was just, you know, so generous to James and yeah, the whole process was incredible to work closely with David like that, who someone in my generation, you know, growing up on Harry Potter is like, oh. you know, he, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, you also just mentioned something at the start of your story that you'd kind of tease that you were in London working with these amazing people, yeah. so, which begs the question, were you working at Abbey Road during any of this? Yes, we... Oh, come for, on! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the great thing about kind of being in James's world is that he does the best production quality for anything he does. There's never any like, oh, we don't have that much money, let's just use the samples. <laughs> That's not a thing that he experiences, I'm or sure. Or like, you know, let's let's find like a pickup orchestra of students, you know, somewhere. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like you're going to London Abbey Road for anything that needs music. Oh, wow. Most of the time, you're going over to London just for the scoring process. Right. So by that time, the music's been approved. Everyone knows what it sounds like because you're providing mock-ups the entire time that are so realistic that the director on the stage is not going to say, oh, wait, is that a clarinet? I actually hate the clarinet. You know, Usually those kinds mm. of issues have been ironed out by the time you're even going over. So that right. when you're actually recording, you go maybe for a week and a half, two weeks, and then you go back to the States to mix and take it from there but for fantastic beasts it was important that david and james and the whole team were there all together because it's such an intensive process i mean that is such a big movie such a big franchise oh yeah and david is such a master director and wants to have a real imprint on every single cue you know he will sometimes give 20 30 revisions on a piece of music and it could be the most amazing piece of music written but he just wants to really hone in to make it as perfect as possible for him and for the project. Yeah. Walk me through a little bit more of what that process kind of looks like, whether you're at Abbey Road or wherever it might be. Yeah. This is obviously, like you said, a very intense and big part of the entire production coming together. I think you talk to yeah. anybody in the post-production world, they will say that a movie really doesn't come together until you finally start to see that score come to life. So this is definitely like, in many ways, you are creating the heartbeat of a film. No big deal. No pressure. Got to get it right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of stakes. You're working on franchises. You're working with people that are obviously huge names, your idols, all these different elements right. that are going into this, right? Walk me through, what is that like working in these environments? And what are you ultimately doing day to day? How long does this process take? I realize it'll ebb and flow from production to production, but as a general kind of overall, what does this look like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a quote that has really stuck with me. I forgot where it's from, but it's music is the final rewrite in any production. Oh, yeah. And so oftentimes there's really a lot of pressure on music to fix. They didn't get a great take on the big crying scene and they right. need to just be that much more emotional. The music can save it. It can turn it, right? Well, they believe that. And I would like to believe that too. Yeah. It's scary in a way though. Before I go into the process, just the amount of responsibility you sometimes feel yeah. with music, because a composer may come in in the last three or four months of a project, or a director and the rest of the crew, and not only the post crew, but I mean, the whole production has been living and breathing this thing for months, years, and they know every intricacy of the story and right. every beat and all the subtext. And then the idea that you're going to come in, if Visuals are 50% of the experience and sound and music is the other 50% for, you know, one or two people to come in at the last minute and create such a uh, <laughs> imprint on it. Yeah. You know, you got to really walk in and know that if a director says something is not working or if a director says, oh, I don't think you've nailed it with this cue, you just got to drop all ego because they know so much more than you in terms of what the story needs and what they're going after. And there are definitely times where you think that you've written the best piece of music ever. 
and you're so proud of it and you play it and then you kind of hear birds chirping and you just, you know, half the skill of my job, I think, is just dropping your ego as soon as that happens and going, okay, I've miscalculated. How do we go back to the drawing board and really make this work? And I imagine that sometimes maybe you did write a really amazing piece of music, but it's just not right for that moment or that scene. Right, exactly. That's a great piece of feedback I've gotten before is, uh, oh, that's a great cue. I hope you find a movie to put it in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The the nicest way to reject somebody in Hollywood, right? Yeah, (laughs) exactly, exactly. But as for the process, a composer will come on kind of anywhere along the whole production process. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get involved from the script level, like in the case of Pain Hustlers, where you're just responding to the script, writing music in the abstract with the hope that they'll like it and put it in the film or that it will, you know, inform how they want to use music in the film. Right. Sometimes you're coming in once there's kind of a rough edit. Sometimes you're coming in when another composer has been fired and there are only three weeks left until the dub. And so a composer kind of starts anywhere along this. I would say most composers probably have the preference of starting as early as possible. Because if you can start before an edit has really begun, you have a chance to create the temp music. For listeners who might not know, before music ever gets written, every editor, every movie comes with, they're placing music from their favorite scores over the scenes to just kind of get a feel of like, oh, we want something action, action-y and pacey here. Or we want something kind of sad and emotional. And we don't quite want this Hans Zimmer track we're using, but something like it. And then over time, people start getting used to that music. And then the composer comes in and you're like going up against some of the greatest scores of all time when oh, sure. you, know, you pull up a scene and they say, oh, we just want something like this, you know, and it's like the end of Interstellar or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the good aspects of coming onto a project as early as possible is if you respond to the script and really just like write in an organic way based off what you're reading you're giving the editor and the director music that they can just already put in. So they're not having to go to that library of these other scores. And it's kind of a more internalized process there. But yeah, composers will start anytime, anywhere in the process. Once there is a cut, usually director and composer will sit down, kind of just watch it together, talk through it. And whether there's temp score or not, you just basically brainstorm. You know, if there is a temp score, you might be saying like, I think this is in the right zone, but it sounds too electronic. And also, I think it should come in a little bit earlier. I think it'd be more effective if it starts on the character blinking rather than some other event that happens. And so that's called a spotting session. And that'll very often be useful, but kind of an equal amount of time, I would say there is no spotting session. Mm-hmm. And you just get sent the film and you start writing stuff and the director or producer or whoever's giving notes will just respond to what they're hearing. You can talk in the abstract all day long about what cuts you're going to hit and the tone and you know, whether you want it to be very modern or kind of more classical, at the end of the day, it's really only when you hear something that you can really respond to it in an honest way. Yeah. So that's kind of what that process looks like. And then you just write pieces of music. You usually send them in five to 10 cue batches and they give notes. And that kind of just goes on and on and on until you're out of time. And sometimes you're getting notes the day before the scoring sessions. Sometimes you're getting notes at the scoring sessions, which is not unfamiliar. And most of the time, they're fairly small, but sometimes they're larger. When we were recording Pain Hustlers at Angel Studios in London, you know, there's this one cue where it's funny. I was using these virtual strings to mock up this section. And I meant for the strings to kind of be very pointed and very kind of loud, but the samples weren't representing that 
terribly accurately in that case, and they sounded kind of quiet. And so they're playing the music. It's all marked forte, which means loud. And you know, David's sitting there, and he's like, it, it just needs to be more fragile. The demo sounded way more fragile. In that case, it's a very small note, and you kind of just tell sure. everyone, like, pipe down a bit and maybe mute the aggressive electronic sound that's also going on. Problem solved. But it's definitely not unheard of for a director to decide that a cue is not working on the stage and you go back that night and you write something else and you hope it's ready for the next day or you kind of dictate something on the spot and you go, oh, that major chord, hey, change that C sharp to a C and now it's going to be a minor chord and is that going to be more the tone you want? And so sometimes these recording sessions is like 100 musicians in the room, producers, directors, engineers, people who work at the studios, there's like tons of people just waiting for a solution to this problem, which didn't exist until five seconds ago. And so a large part of the job of a film composer is just adapting to these situations and learning how to just really hone in on kind of what are the smallest changes that are going to have maximum impact and how do we really, even at the last second, get the director what they need. Yeah, very much so. Sounds like a lot of flexibility and adaptability, like you said. Also a lot of teamwork, obviously, like we see throughout the industry. And a right. lot of trust. Like you really have to trust that you're coming into this process sometimes way later in the game than a lot of these people that were on since the very beginning. And you right. do have to kind of just have that trust fall moment to say they ultimately know better than you might Right. what's going to fit where, what's going to work, that sort of thing, right? So it's very interesting. I imagine that these recording sessions must be like the highlight of any composing process, right? Like when I'm closing my eyes, I think about this, it's like, holy cow, who wouldn't want to be at a recording session like this? And I know that there's a lot right. of things going on and there's stress and there's changes and all that. But also this is when it is really literally before your very eyes and ears coming to life. What is that like? Does that fuel more creativity on the spot? How do those sessions typically go for you? I mean, it's the ultimate breath of fresh air in the process because, yeah. you know, when you've really been in the weeds and you might be working 16, 18 hours a day when you're really trying to get things in shape and you're just hearing the same virtual sounds over and over again. And, you know, the director might be saying like, this really needs to feel bigger and more impactful. And you've been promising for like the last two weeks, like once you hear it with the live musicians, it's going to come to life. And so when you get to the recording session, it's just such a relief because you hear this great sound. You're live musicians. Yeah. You know, you hear all of them breathing together, everyone working together to make this amazing sound. And finally, the music sounds like what you thought it was going to sound like in your head. <laughs> Which is also rewarding and satisfying in its own way, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, it's great when you know, the director like really sees what this was always going to be. And there's no better part of the process. And it really kind of recharges you for the final steps, which often are just, you, know, you got to record it, which can sometimes be grueling in a way because you might be doing three sessions in a day, three, three hour sessions, if it's a really big film. And so you're there from 8am till 10pm, basically, and you're doing that every day, and it's cold out and there's bad studio coffee. And, <laughs> right, um, all, all the things we're used to, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But 
just having the positions there makes it all worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. There's always like that one thing that really gives you that jolt of energy and adrenaline and that kind of thing. And we've talked to other people on this podcast and, you know, some it's when they're doing a live show, the second that they go live and they know they're broadcasting on air, that's right. when the adrenaline hits. And like, for you, no doubt it's these recording sessions, right? It's just like, this, yeah. this is the moment that you dream of when you're a kid, when you're watching that loss. And it's like, how did they bring right. that to life? It's in this moment, right? You know, right. So that, that's very cool to see. Especially because very much of actually doing the work is just sitting alone in a room playing the same mm. violin line over and over again. And oh, you played the violin line a little too loudly this time. So you got to reperform it slightly quieter. And oops, you accidentally hit a C sharp instead of a D. And so you got to replay it again. And you're just so isolated. And then suddenly you realize like, oh, this is not me writing classical music in my bedroom as a 13 year old. I'm part of this whole thing where right. not only is the music self-serving because it's so rewarding to make, but people need it and they want it. And that's mm. always the thing I found so exciting about film scoring is that it was other people asking for music and really taking a vested interest in music, which is just so the opposite of what I experienced in the classical world, where you're the luckiest person in the world if you get the opportunity to write a piece for an orchestra classically. But it's really all for you in a way. I mean, there's not a huge audience for it, and you're really fighting for whatever grant or commission enabled that. So that's really, in a way, what makes me love film music is that other people suddenly really have an interest in it and really need it. And they like it so much, and they need it so much that they're offering revision notes and that they really care about the quality of every moment. And for me, that's inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. This is a perfect transition into what I was going to talk about next, which is that you obviously have done a lot of things, like we said on your resume. One of the most notable is that you were Emmy nominated for the Bridgerton theme song, Yes, which I want to hear the process of how one creates a theme song, but hold that thought for a second, because... Right before our interview today, I quick one on YouTube, and I just wanted to refresh my memory of the theme song. And so I type in Bridgerton opening credit theme song, yeah. and it pops up, and I, yeah, I'm listening to it. And I start reading the comments, and <laughs> every single one of these comments is absolutely astounding. The first one on the top here that has over a thousand likes says, I cry every time this intro song comes on. It is my escapism. This show and this theme is everything. The second one, there is a crazy intimacy with this theme. Third one here says, I have this as my ringtone. So whenever I wake up, it just puts me in the right mood for the day. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. This goes on, by the way. There's hundreds yeah. of comments like this. And not only are there all these comments, but all these people validating these comments and liking them and all this. And it's all going to prove one thing, which is that what you're doing here is definitely <laughs> being felt, right? We always hear that music is universal and, you know, all these kind of things. But this is really proof of the pudding, right? You talk about being validated and going from your isolation to being in front of people and right. having that creative collaborative process. But then you get to the actual audience when it's actually out there, when it's distributed, when it's on Netflix or wherever it is. What is that like to be able to hear that there are people that have taken your work and put it on their ringtones and that they get emotional when this music hits their ears? Yeah. I mean, being relatively early on in my career, that's certainly the first piece I've been involved in that's had that kind of reception to it and that kind of life. And that's the best feeling ever. Yeah. And, you know, 
I wouldn't admit this to most people, but I'll admit it to you now, which is probably once every two or three weeks, I go to YouTube and I type Bridgerton main theme cover. And since the show came out in 2020, I found hundreds of people arranged it for guitars and harps and, you know, they'll play flute along with it, or they get their friends together and they play with three of their schoolmates and they play someone proposed to their girlfriend by hiring a string quartet to play it on the street. And they walked by and they start playing it as he gets down on one knee. And it's like something I could have never imagined. In fact, my sister was once at a wedding in the middle of nowhere. And she takes a video of the string quartet playing at the wedding. She goes, is this, uh, is this Bridgerton main theme? <laughs> I was like, sure is, sure wow. is. And I've had other friends tell me, oh, I was at this art gallery in Toronto and there was a little ensemble playing it. So that's insane. And you know, maybe that feeling will go away with time. But for now, it's such an adrenaline rush. And I hope to have more pieces like that that kind of enter, enter people's minds in a way. Absolutely. Um, and such a nice validating thing to be able to see that this really is having an impact on people. Right. And as for how that theme came about and, you know, how one writes a main title, this is kind of an unusual circumstance because it was never intended as a main title. So I co-wrote it with Chris Bowers, who is a absolutely amazing film composer. He's been, you know, like James, a kind of pivotal mentor of mine in the last five years or so. Uh, and he invited me kind of fairly on early on in the process to write additional music for the series. And there was a scene in, I think it was the first or the second episode where Simon and Daphne kind of have this dance where they really, you know, they're in this crowd of people, but then suddenly they're dancing and you sense it's really only the two of them. Mm. And it's a completely non-main title related scene. You know, it's basically a ballroom scene that becomes a hyper-focused moment between the two characters. And so Chris and I were working on that scene for quite a while. I mean, we were on version probably five or six because they kept wanting there to be this really interesting shift from what was more classical ballroom music into this kind of pop string quartet emotional thing that felt of the time, but was also just contemporary and emblematic of their relationship. And so we were working on this piece over and over and over again. And it got to the point where I was waking up at four in the morning, five in the morning, just to like try out some new versions of it. And then Chris would be doing some stuff with it. And we'd be talking later in the day. And eventually, finally, the queue gets approved. And then six months later, I get a call from Chris and he goes, hey, yeah, that piece we wrote for the uh, ballroom scene, they're going to use it as the main title. Turns out they don't want a different main title. They just love that piece. So that's done. (laughs) So I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And he's like, yeah. And I you know, I know you're credited as, as additional music, but we got to submit this thing to the Emmys. So, you know, and since we co-wrote it, you know, we'll just put both of our names on it. For that to emerge in such a, you know, generous and, I mean, it's, it's just unheard of. And I, I feel so lucky to be the recipient of that kind of generosity because there is no shortage of stories of people not extending that. Very much so. He didn't need to do that, but I'm extremely grateful and thankful for that. So it's, it's an unusual main title in that it was never intended to be a main title. It was another piece of music that the showrunner fell in love with, and that was that. And then Chris was generous enough to elevate my name alongside him for the nomination. Very, very cool. Yeah. Of all the pieces that you've worked on so far, what do you think is the one that stands out most as being your favorite to date? Oh, man. I realize this is an impossible question, but I I can't not ask it. Uh, I got to say probably the Bridgerton main title just for the life it's had. 
And also just by the time we were putting together the version that actually got approved, you know, it was such a kind of just free flowing state of creativity. Cause at first you're trying to approach things analytically. You're trying to go, all right, this is what's happening in the scene. You know, how do I change for this moment? How do we do this in a kind of calculated way? And after just being told this isn't working over and over again, you just go to the point where you're like, let me just try this. Let me just watch the scene, improvise along with it. And I think that's basically kind of how some of the final version came about was just really organically responding to what the picture was in a kind of state of desperation and it just working. And so to have that kind of moment of inspiration, creativity is something that's not lost on me. And so that, that makes that piece very special to me. Yeah. Good answer. If you were to give a small masterclass of sorts as to how to be a composer, what do you think your first lesson would be on? Huh. Listen to a lot of music and try and develop good taste as much as you can. And I think that applies not only to film music, but probably anything. I mean, this is something I think I started thinking about when I was writing classical music mostly. And it was, you know, I might not have the ability, I might not have the orchestration chops of John Williams, or I might not be able to sit down and improvise a scene in one second, like Chris Bowers might be able to. But I know what a good scene is supposed to feel like. And I know what a good piece of music is supposed to sound like. And if I put my butt in the chair and just work at it over and over and over again and be really honest with myself about, like, is this working? Is this as good as a professional level thing? Or am I just having fun and just holding yourself to that standard, even if you have to go through a lot of legwork to reach that point, I think is really important. Yeah. And then hopefully over time, your technical skills improve and, uh, and you catch up. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why from day one, you shouldn't be striving to make something that's absolutely top quality. And, you know, it'll just take a hundred times longer because you just got to be honest with yourself. Like, does this sound like something that goes on the radio or that when you put on a soundtrack blows up the speakers with its size and power? Yeah, very much so. I think that's solid advice. And I remember that was like one of the things that I was told early on. uh, I think when I first got to film school was like the first hundred things that you do, they're not going to be your best, right? Right. So you just got to get those out of your system as quickly as possible. So then you can get to the good stuff, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's when you can start having fun. And I think the skill of just being honest with yourself kind of will translate to every aspect of the job. I mean, when I'm working on a scene and you've been working on a section for three hours and you think it's an amazing piece of music. And then you start saying, is part of this really stupid? Is part of this right. you know, not working with the scene at all? And then you go, oh my God, but I've already put all this time in and I came up with this really cool bass sound. And you know, I even have like, it hits this cut with this big sound effect and just being able to kind of really honestly go, is this working at all? Or have I just like gone down this path and I'm just having fun writing a big piece of music on top of it? And so I think just constantly being able to check in with yourself and be honest about the role you're playing, which is you're serving the story. You're serving the director's vision. Mm. You're trying to support the story in a way that's as organic as possible. Sometimes you get carried away with something and uh, that honesty is just important to rein you back in. Yeah. A lot of that coming up today in this conversation that the honesty is important, the teamwork, the trust, the dropping of the ego to just really make way for what can be the best, most authentic creative process possible, right? Very, very, very interesting things that I would not have necessarily thought about going into this conversation, but I'm glad to have kind of picked up a little bit on. So these are good hot tips. (laughs) (laughs) 
Very nice. Well, now it comes time for our favorite way to end our podcast. This is where we do our world-famous Hollywood hot seat. It is my opportunity to ask you 10 kind of rapid-fire questions, and you're going to tell me the first thing that kind of jumps to mind. I can't wait to see what kind of answers you have here because some of these questions were written for you in mind. Are you ready to play the Hollywood hot seat? Let's do it. Here we go. Question number one. Favorite movie? Uh, There Will Be Blood. Ooh, okay. I just think it's an amazing movie. I love movies that kind of tell a full story of someone's life and insane events surrounding it. And I I just love all of PTA's movies and the score with it is so good as well. So Fantastic. Number two. I have a feeling I might know the answer to this one. Favorite TV show? Oh, it's got to be Lost. It's got to be Lost, right? Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be surprised if you said anything besides Lost. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, do you, it, is it really because of the score or was it everything? You know, I when I was watching it, I was like a nine-year-old who dedicated my life to that show. I was sneaking on my parents' computer to like go on the forums and read theories about, you know, the black smoke monster and right. <laughs> polar bears and Dharma initiative. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very deep and had this like account on a forum where I would write lost inspired stories and post them. <laughs> and everyone on the forums would be like, you're writing, uh, it's kind of like the writing of an 11 year old. And it was like, well, fair enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I, I also love, you know, I've always loved like Star Trek next gen and Twilight Zone and, yeah. uh, Black Mirror. I, I love a lot of sci fi and anthology series and yeah. Okay. Very good. It's funny that you say lost because you are now the second person that we've had on this podcast that has said lost is their favorite TV <laughs> show. You and the man who is the voice of Donald Duck both agree that lost Perfect. is their favorite TV show. So there you have it. Number three, what is your go-to craft service snack? Ooh, so I'm going to have to modify that question to be a scoring session snack because I don't <laughs> think I, I haven't been near a craft service table in my life. <laughs> Never been on a set. Would love to. I guess that makes sense, huh? Yeah. So for me, the equivalent is like when you go to a scoring session. Okay. And the people and the people working there put out like forbidden treats, which usually is tender greens catering. But the thing I look forward to is a Coke Zero. A Coke Zero. Okay. Coke Zero. There you go. I was one of those people who bought into the aspartame poison nonsense, which I think has been disproven. So I like trained myself to not have diet cokes for a long, long time. But scoring sessions, all bets are off. If we're mm-hmm. going to be sitting there for nine hours of recording spread across 15 hours, I'm having two Coke Zeros an hour, having two espressos per hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Coke Zero for sure. Very good. Solid answer. Number four, who is your Hollywood crush hall pass? Oh, that that's easy. Uh, with my girlfriend who's off camera. Uh, whoever, whoever people say she looks like is going to be my answer. <laughs> Taking the cop out answer here. I see. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Okay. All right. All right. That's fine. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I respect the move. There's no pressure whatsoever in the room right now. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> number five, who is a talent that you are dying to work with? Oh, you know, I think actually, Someone I've already worked with, a director I've worked with probably five or six times named Takashi Dosher. We, uh, 
collaborated on a Wolf Entertainment scripted podcast series called Darkwood. I did one of his features called Only with Frida Pinto and Leslie O'Dom Jr. And I just think he is the most gifted director. And anytime I Zoom with him or catch up with him and he tells me about projects down the line, I'm like, oh, please hire me for that because I just love working with him. And so uh, just the chance to keep working with people who I have loved working with in the past. That's a solid answer. That's probably the realest answer I've heard for that question. So props to you for that one. Uh, Number six, if you could trade places with anybody for a day, who would it be? Oh, okay. This is a non-industry answer. Uh, Trevor James, the food ranger. (laughs) Okay. He's a YouTube Anthony Bourdain type figure who goes around uh, a lot of regions in China and India and all over and just has a great time eating street food. So I think as someone who's often just kind of in a studio 24 hours a day, the idea of like trekking the world and eating yummy food (laughs) sounds really good. I mean, yeah, count me in, right? That sounds amazing. (laughs) Right. Uh, Number seven, this is the one I'm dying to hear your answer to. Favorite film score or soundtrack? Oh, I'm going to say a couple. Uh, James Horner, Beautiful Mind. I love that score. Just so sweeping and lush, and the themes are great, and his style of harmonies, it, it never feels like anyone else. It's just so great. Yeah. Uh, Got to pay tribute to James and say his score for Signs. Mm. I mean, or really any of the collaborations he did with M. Night Shyamalan. I always kind of pinch myself when we might be playing ping pong or something, and we play high-stakes ping pong. You, know, you can ask Amy about that sometime. <laughs> but um, we play very high-stakes ping pong. And occasionally I'll be like, oh, this is the guy that whose music I heard when I was five years old. Watch, <laughs> you know, when my mom let me watch The Sixth Sense or like when I cried at the end of Signs, probably one of the greatest scenes with music together ever. Oh, yeah. Or Unbreakable. I mean, such an amazing uh, score for an amazing movie. So, you know, kind of the whole James M. Night saga yeah. uh, is up there for me. Those are solid answers. I also love what you just said here because this is one of my favorite things about working in the industry is that we get to work with people that made our childhoods. You know, if you're lucky, that's what you get to do. So the ping pong story you give is is a perfect example of this where it's like, you know, here you are, you've made a relationship and a friendship with this guy that, you know, has become a really close collaborating partner with you. And, you know, this was also the person who, like you said, when you're five years old, you're watching signs and just kind of being blown away by the experience that he created years ago right and it is still one of those things that's hard to wrap your head around at times isn't it well yeah i mean and, and the fact that i co-composed a score with him 10 times nine time oscar nominee every other award <laughs> in the world or or sometimes when you know we we were just working on hunger games this past year the new one mm. and the amount of times where he'll call me into his room and he'll just be like oh i'm, I'm really stuck on this what do you think and just like having a way in on his music is like yeah it's just a surreal position and so I'm very grateful for it, but also it's all kind of in a fever dream, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I I absolutely love that. And I I could not agree or relate to it more. So that's a fantastic (laughs) little antidote you made there. Number eight, we're talking about a a Hollywood legends dinner party. If you could invite three people over for dinner, living or dead, who would you bring over for a night? Oh, I'm going to go with just some all-time favorite directors. I mean, let's get... uh, Let's get Ron Howard. Let's get David Fincher. Let's get Alex Garland. Let's get, I mean, David Yates, frankly, because I mean, the, yeah. the impact he had on my childhood and I have worked with him, but man, I'd love to grab dinner with him. There, there um, you go. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
Fantastic. All right. Great answer. Number nine, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about navigating Hollywood, what would it be? Nothing is linear. Like you, you, you get an Emmy nomination. You think that's going to (laughs) really propel things in a certain direction and it doesn't, but it might help with something that happens three years later Mm -hmm. or it impresses someone and they don't even mention it. And then you get this kind of gig or, you know, like I'm experiencing now with pain hustlers, which debuted in the middle of a strike. And so in a way it's like just kind of having faith that couple months from now down the line that'll help me in ways that i can't really see at the moment yeah but it's just that kind of attitude but stretched across one's entire career where when i'm cleaning up cockroaches in the closet of my first internship not realizing that two years later one of the people working at the studio would recommend me to an internship at Hans zimmer's studio and then from there i would meet someone who you know, I then worked for for a couple of years and then from there met James and you can't plan for any of it. And whatever you expect is going to lead to something is usually not going to. And mm-hmm. the totally innocuous encounter you have with someone in the hallway will be the thing that changes your life. So right. give up on thinking that you can like plan any of it and just, just go along with it. <laughs> It's such solid advice, and it's also what you kind of alluded to at the beginning, which is don't just look at it as getting from A to B. Take the journey. Yeah. Just enjoy the ride and see what comes as it hits you. That's all part of this journey. You see the shows like the American Idols or America's Got Talent or whatever, and you think, all you got to do is go out there, be talented, and you'll get something in return. And the answer is not always that simple, right? You can be very talented. You can put all the time in. But to your point, it's not always linear. It may come back later in different ways down the road and you know, at different points in your career. Now I'm curious for our last question here, what's the best piece of advice you've received working in the industry so far? And who did that come from? Hmm. Well, I think the best piece of advice I got was definitely about the following kind of whatever opportunities you have available. Yeah. Um, this being a business of referrals is really important to understand. And I was told that by John, honestly, when I was like 12 years old, 13 years old, I've never once gotten a job from any kind of public announcement, cold call, Mm. cold email. And as many hundreds of like desperate, hungry composers emails I used to send out, the things that have always resulted in meaningful connections is you work with an editor on a project, then they're working with a different director on the next project. They bring you on, then that director works on a different project, then the camera guy on that project liked the score when he saw it at this final screening. And you meet him at a cocktail bar. And so it's all just kind of invisible in a way. It's all about who you know, right? At the end of the day. Yeah. Very good. Strong advice and a great way to end today's recording. Michael Dean Parsons, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. If people are looking to follow your journeys online, whether it be social media, websites, or otherwise, how can they find you on the interwebs? Super easy. Uh, MichaelDeanParsons.com or uh, Instagram. My handle is MichaelDeanParsons. Wow. Look at that. It literally could not be any easier. Well, uh-huh. I cannot thank you enough for your time today. This has been an absolute thrill being able to take a little peek into your world of music and composing. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, maybe we should do this again sometime and hear even more stories. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again, man. Kyle on the Isle is an official podcast of Magic Lamp Productions and is recorded in the heart of Hollywood, California. This episode was executive produced and directed by me, Kyle Molson. 
Produced by Natalie Izquierdo and Lauren Wilson. Editing by Cody Crabb. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it five stars. Every single review goes a long way. And while you're at it, give us a follow on our social media channels at Kyle on the Isle. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Olson, and I'll be saving you a seat next time on the Isle. And cut! That's a wrap, folks. <laughs>